Hello, I'm Zeb Newirth, and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, this is part two of our dialogue with Harris Rosen and his colleagues from the Rosen Hotels and Resorts uh, and what they've been doing in the domain of employee health, as well as now community health and wellness. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, uh, it's episode number 113, which was posted about a month ago. I would urge you to do so. Uh, it is one of the most remarkable case studies in how employers can provide much better health care and healthcare experience for their employees at about half the cost. Let me say that again, at about half the cost with much better health outcomes. And again, please, uh, if you don't believe me, please check out the podcast. Now, the focus of this interview is quite different. Um, and quite honestly, it's outside of the realm of healthcare. And it's the first podcast episode I've done that is outside of healthcare, although it's related to health. As a result of the savings that the Rosen Hotel and Resorts have accrued over many years, uh, largely from the savings from their employee health, they've been able to pour that money back into local communities. Now, what's astounding to me are a number of things. First, the fact that they've had enough savings from their employee health program so they can invest in their communities. Second, the fact that Harris Rosen and his leadership team have decided to invest in the well-being of their communities. I think it's just really, really the right thing to do, but not sure how typical it is to do that for companies to invest locally in their communities. Third, their investment is really unique from a philanthropic perspective. I think I was surprised with uh, and asked the question, how did you decide what to invest in in the community and why and, and how it's worked out? And I think you're just going to, if you're like me, you're going to really enjoy and, and benefit from hearing and, and be inspired by it. And finally, their model, both their employee healthcare model and this philanthropic model investing in the communities are highly replicable. They can be repeated, which is one of the reasons I want to share it with you. You know, again, I have to say, this is not directly a healthcare story, but I was so, so moved, so inspired by what Harris Rosen and his colleagues have been doing for the past 20 or so years, the way they've invested in the community, the outcomes. It's a story I felt that had to be told. And so I'm putting it in the podcast series. I'm hoping that you'll not only benefit from it, but that you will forward it to others and share it with others. I honestly believe that every CEO, every leadership team in the country should listen to this story and should replicate it. And you'll hear more about this as we get into it. Joining us in this interview will be Harris Rosen, the CEO of Rosen Hotels and Resorts, Chuck uh, Zubin and Juanita Reed. Mr. Zubin is the director of the Harris Rosen Foundation. He's also part of uh, UCF and in charge of maintaining the statistics of the Tangelo Park program that we're going to be hearing about. And uh, he's the uh, scientific mind uh, and the research mind behind this, demonstrating uh, some of the outcomes. Juanita Reed is a recently retired guidance counselor at Dr. Phillips High School, which is the feeder school for most of the Tangelo Park program youth. She has mentored students in this program and continues to lead part of the program. Now in a new role she has as part of the Harris Rosen Foundation. Folks, uh, before we jump into this interview, and again, you're going to hear my enthusiasm, uh, my admiration. I, I just can't say enough about this. And again, I hope you spread this word. And along those lines, uh, before we introduce our guests, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, as soon as you're done listening to the podcast or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, please forward this, uh, the message to at least three colleagues or just blast it out on your professional listserv, your LinkedIn account. I know that some of you have already been doing this. I really greatly appreciate you for taking your time to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating new healthcare. And I just want to let you know that 
what you're doing, those of you who are, who are sharing the podcast, it's working. I just have to tell you, I just looked at some statistics. We're up now, at least over the last month or, or six weeks, we're up 1,500 new listeners to the podcast, which is actually quite tremendous. Uh, we're now well over 7,000 uh, listeners who have been downloading the podcast series. So just want to, again, let you know what you're doing is working. Please continue to spread the word, spread the podcast. And again, can't thank you enough. So without further ado, let's drop into the interview that we recorded with Mr. Harris Rosen and his colleagues about this amazing philanthropic uh, initiative uh, in the Tangelo Park program. So Harris, uh, Chuck Juanita, I've been spending the past couple of weeks uh, reading about the work you've been doing for years, and I'm just in awe. Actually, the truth is, I want your autographs. I want to send something to you and get it autographed and have you send it back to me. Brilliant, inspiring work, and I'm, I'm excited to have the opportunity to speak with y'all. How did this all start? When did this start, this idea of Tangelo Park? What is Tangelo Park? Where is it? How large is it? what percentage minority and and then how did you even think about doing this i'm just very very curious as to where it all started well i, I think i was there at the very beginning with uh, a lady named sarah sprinkle and a gentleman named bill spoon uh, bill was a principal of a high school and sarah an early childhood expert i had a dream that i'd been blessed beyond anything i ever imagined and I was told in the dream that it was time for me to demonstrate my appreciation for everything I had been blessed with and that I needed to think of ways that I could offer a helping hand to others. Education was always important in my little family, my mom and dad and my brother and myself. And so I called Sarah and Bill and I said, I want to do something that has education uh, as the most important component. Within a very short period of time, because I said I want to provide uh, scholarship assistance, Sarah and Bill and I put together what is now referred to as the Tangible Program, free preschool for all of the youngsters in an underserved community, working with the children, preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, and especially high school. Our goal was to make sure that as many of the youngsters in the neighborhood as possible could graduate, would graduate from high school. And so that was the program. And I was so thrilled that at the end of a couple of hours, we had created a program which I thought would be very useful in our underserved communities. The problem was that I didn't have an underserved community in mind. I called a commissioner friend of mine, Mabel Butler, and I said, Mabel, I'm looking for an underserved community that's in trouble right now and needs help. She said, I'll be right over. Mabel picked me up and drove me to Tangelo Park. It was there that I met Dr. Bob Allen, who's the principal of the elementary school in Tangelo Park. Within a very short period of time, I shared with Bob and with Commissioner Butler my idea. They loved it. They said, we're going to arrange for you to have a meeting with the neighborhood association. Within a week or so, they arranged for the meeting. I spoke to the neighborhood. I didn't find much enthusiasm. I saw a lot of doubts. Why is this guy talking about this? Is there some ulterior motive? Does he want to invest? Does he want the neighborhood to improve so he can make money? So I responded by saying, look, guys, I just want to help. Nothing in it for me at all, other than the satisfaction of helping. And I said, we're not going to wait until the three and four-year-olds are ready for college 
any youngster that's ready for college now or trade school or community college, I'll take care of them. I'll pay everything, room and board, tuition, books, whatever. Well, everyone went crazy. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And so from that moment on, we were off and running. Harris, through the Rosen Hotels and Resorts, you had made money and you wanted to give back. There are lots of things people do. You could have started a community center. You, you obviously with, with Rosen Care, you become expert in healthcare. You could have started a, a healthcare center. Why education? I mean, what made you think that education was important? And, and Zev, listen, that, that's a very good question. Growing up in New York City's Lower East Side, where immigrants from all over the world came, from Eastern Europe, mostly, and Ireland and Italy, my mom and dad would say to my brother and myself, guys, if you ever want to leave this neighborhood, if you want to live a different kind of life, because we lived only a couple of blocks from the Bowery, please, please study hard. I want you guys to graduate from high school. And I want you guys to do something that nobody else in the family has done. Go on to college and graduate. And we said, okay, mom, we'll work hard and do that. And so that was embedded in my mind from the time I was five or six years old. And I knew how important education was because I graduated from high school and I went to college. Uh, I served with Uncle Sam and came back and got a job. And now here I was. I, I, I had my own little company. And, and I would say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And, and then I would hear education, education, education is responsible for where you are today and what you're doing. Of course, hard work and treating people with dignity, that was important. But that's where education came from. And boy, it was right on target. Well, when you say that, it's uh, touching and also I can relate to this notion of that importance of education uh, as a way to elevate your status, to create that upward mobility. Your mom was spot on, clearly. I think there's uh, lots of evidence to support what she taught you. And clearly, there's lots of evidence that you all have generated as well as others to show that the type of interventions you're talking about in terms of promoting and supporting education does in fact do that. You offered to do what in terms of the college scholarship? Well, and, and, and Chuck has wonderful data on, on, uh, to support why I did what I did without that data, but it, it really resonates now. Uh, I just thought um, a high school diploma was important, and I thought that a college education was important as well, but I didn't realize what the data is that supports my feeling. And, and Chuck could certainly talk about that. And it, it has proven to be so true that a high school education is critical if one wants to achieve some success in life. And if one aspires to do even more, then a college education is important or, or a trade school education is important or perhaps just a community college. But they are important if one has dreams and aspires to be something in life. If one aspires to have goals and dreams, an education certainly is important. Juanita, Harris introduced the initiatives here. Can you speak to uh, specifically some of these components? So for instance, there's a college scholarship. Could you describe that? The scholarship is a safety net. It covers the unmet financial need of the student. Uh, I was invited to come in as the student's counselor when the program started. 
And although I have always pushed, pushed students for higher education and helping with scholarships, when I was told about this scholarship, it was unlike anything I had even imagined. You know, here we have a philanthropist who now wants to finance scholarships for a whole community. And my immediate thinking was who, what, where, uh, no one gives money for nothing. He has to want something in return. And I was right, he did. He wanted the kids to have dreams and make those dreams reality with the hopes of going to college and not have to worry about debt. Therefore, and the other thing that he pushed also in the process, he wanted it to start immediately and he wanted us to keep it simple, kiss. He always uses that, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. So that's what we did, we kept it simple. There is a residency requirement that you have to live in, in the Tangelo Park community at least two years prior to graduation. And they must maintain full-time residence the whole time they are in college. As I said, it is a safety net. It covers the unmet financial need of the student. All after financial aid, other scholarships have posted. The bills do not go to the student's home. The bill was sent to me. No, I do not write the checks. I sign off on them and send them on. It is by far one of the easiest and most simple scholarships that's available to the students. And Juanita, it, my understanding is that scholarship covers full tuition, room and board, books, and other educational needs. So it covers the balance on their accounts for tuition, room, board, books. And that's, that's tuition and related fees because there are some additional fees to your regular tuition. But at the end of the day, the amount, although the amount for each scholarship is not the same for each student, at the end of the day, the amount that's coming out of the household is $0. That's amazing. So these students who get this scholarship have zero debt from college. Zero debt. And they can use it, although we would like to think that all of our students were college bound. We do have some who are more interested in the technical colleges or the vocational schools. Therefore, it can be used at those schools, two-year state colleges, and the universities, all of our public schools. What year did this program start? It started with the graduating class of 1994. And since 1994, how many students have had this college or vocational school scholarship. Okay, Chuck, I'm gonna let you give me to give the numbers. <laughs> okay, here we go. We'll give you the numbers. I think, you know, aside from the fact that this is clearly the right thing to do from philosophic and societal point of view, um, the economics of this are simply overwhelming. If you graduate from high school, you earn an additional half a million dollars a year. On average, if you graduate from college, you earn an additional million, more than enough to take anyone out of poverty into the middle class. I think really what you have to ask yourself is what is the problem we're trying to solve? And let me try to frame that for you. If you live in the bottom economic quartile in this country, your chance of attending and graduating from college is 11%. The odds against you are nine to one, flat out. Those are the odds. And it is very interesting if you look over the last 50 years in this country, the access for you know, underserved children has increased greatly. The success rate in college has not increased nearly as much as we'd hoped for. So when we're talking about college debt, right now, the total college debt in the United States of America is $1.7 trillion. If that were a GDP, that would be equal to the 11th largest economy in the world. It's mind boggling. And the reality is that the bottom economic quartile in this country carries the majority of that debt. If you look at the trends over the years, the greatest increase in the carriage of that debt goes to our African-American students. So this is a compounding problem we have yet to solve as a country. Now, the reality is in Tangelo Park, with the approximate 500 students who have graduated from high school. To date, the expectation would have been somewhere around, given those numbers, approximately 45 students 
graduating from college. We have achieved 160 college graduates in Tangelo Park, more than three times the expectation. We have achieved 227 degrees. So we have, this is the right metric. What we have done, Sarah, is greatly increase the odds of these young people gaining a college education. That's amazing. So the odds against them were nine to one. Nine to one. And what are the odds now? Oh, the nine, the odds now are three to one in favor. In favor, three to one in favor Absolutely. of them. Yeah. Be, wow. Of the, because 78% of them who uh, do what Juanita said, that is remain in the community and stay with the program, 78% of them graduate from college. And in the upper economic quartile in this country, only 60% graduate from college. You know, you mentioned also the issue of a lot of this debt being in Black people, in Black students. Mm -hmm. In Tangela Park, what percent of the community is minority? I'll, I'll defer to Juanita. She's a resident of Tangela. <laughs> okay, when I think in terms of uh, the percentages, I would say now it is probably... Uh, I would say maybe 80% African-American and we have the other 20%, uh, I would say 15% Latino and the other 5% Asian. The makeup of the community has changed drastically. It's really changed a lot. It's become more and more diverse. If I knew about Tangela Park, I would move there if I wasn't living there to get this college scholarship. Uh, have you seen that? How has this impacted the community itself? Uh, we, it has impacted, which makes up the diversity now, because at one time when we first started, when I think in terms of the class of 1994, 100% of the students graduating and who were in attendance at Dr. Phillips High School, because they all go to the same high school, were African-American. If I look at the class of, uh, say, 2019, out of 25 students, I have four who are Hispanic, okay? So it has changed. A lot of homes are being sold because you have a lot of the older generation that are, that are moving. But we have a lot of the students who, who grew up in the community, they're returning. They're returning to the community because they now have families and they want their families to take advantage of this program. Now, that is the reason why we added the residency requirement is in place to alleviate students moving into Tangelo Park just for the sake of getting a scholarship. They have to be full-time residents. The students, their biological parents, are legal guardians through the courts. Full-time residents of the Tangelo Park community, a minimum of two years prior to graduation, all of junior and senior year, and maintain residence the whole time they're in college. Chuck, one of the things I read about was, you know, some of these statistics that you're talking about are amazing in terms of the number of students who stayed in high school versus now versus before, the number that matriculate to college, the number that finished college. Really, really amazing numbers, which I'd, I'd love you to go through if you can just even share one or two of these stats. But what about the neighborhood itself, Tangela Park? How has this program help the neighborhood? Well, the neighborhood has changed dramatically. You know, uh, as an evaluator, I've made a lot of mistakes and I should have uh, gotten a better picture of what Tangelo Park was like. And Juanita can validate that in 1994, but it was, it was a difficult community. It was dangerous. There were drug dealers. Um, Bob Allen, the uh, elementary school principal, would tell us that he had to patrol the playground every morning for drug paraphernalia, weapons, and other kinds of things. So there has been a dramatic change in the culture, great increase in pride in the community. Uh, that has been the transformational nature of a community. Tangelo Park is so much more than statistics. It is how the culture of this community, the pride has taken over, the esprit de corps in the community, the pride of the community about their students. One of the criticisms we've bared over the years is that we're a boutique little program in one community. I disagree with that. I, I think Harris disagrees with it, and so does Juanita. What we have built is a model for how one can transform the, the country, one community at a time. It is not a boutique program. 
with our 164 college graduates, we are now undertaking an intergenerational impact study. Not only has it impacted the graduates, it has impacted their children and their grandchildren. We know they have better quality lives. And as a matter of fact, we know it's impacted their parents as well. So there has been this incredible sort of effect of Tangelo Park spreading out across the country. And that's what we so desperately want other funders to see. I think you're making a great point. One of the statistics I read, which was really remarkable, was, you know, and you spoke a little bit to this, this notion of crime, the crime rate, since you put this program into place, has decreased something like close to 80% since the beginning of the program, which is remarkable. One of the things that you wrote is about unintended side effects, and Harris can speak more to that. We never even thought about crime. And if you look at our data, crime didn't move for almost six years. It remained constant, and then it began a sudden drop, which speaks to the fact that if a program is to be effective, Zev, you have to be in for the long haul. And I've said this many, many times, oftentimes foundation funding crickets chirp in three-year cycles. You'd never do Tangelo in three years, ever. Right, Juanita? Right, Harris? Never, that's correct. Let, let, me, let me just add something, if I can. You, you were speaking about crime and speaking about the neighborhood. I got to know um, the sheriff and his deputies pretty well uh, when we started Tangelo because they were major issues occurring on a regular basis. A number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to speak with the sheriff at that point, Sheriff Deming. And he said, Harris, I, I have to tell you something. I said, oh, I was hoping it was something good. He said, we now consider to be a quiet oasis. I must tell you, at that moment, I almost cried. A quiet oasis from what it was when we started. That is just so wonderful. And what is so frustrating is that we can turn other underserved communities that are struggling into quiet oases the same way we did at Tangelo Park. College scholarships was a big part of, the, of what you started and have maintained since 1994. Another part of it was daycare centers and early childhood education. And I wonder if one of you could sort of share what that program was about, why you did that, and how it helps. It started with Sarah Sprinkle, the early childhood expert who was there with me and Bill Spoon. She said, Harris, you, you can't just give college scholarships. You can't start when youngsters are graduating from high school. You have to start sooner. I said, in kindergarten? He said, no, no, no. Start when they're two. I said, really, Sarah, two years old? Yes, that is when the brain is really beginning to develop. And if you start at two, these youngsters will become not disadvantaged, but advantaged when they move into kindergarten and elementary school. And that has been proven to be so correct. When our youngsters are in kindergarten, they're so far ahead of those poor kids that didn't have the preschool education. And so that's why we created preschool, because an expert said it was important. And boy, she has been proven so correct. How were they advantaged? What do they get in the these two, three, four-year-olds, what do they get in this preschool? Well, the way I would address that, first of all, James Hexman, the Nobel laureate economist, has just published a paper on the impact of the Perry School project that was 30 years ago, where they were able to randomly assign students to preschool and not preschool. 30 years later, he followed them up with a landmark study that was just published in terms of the fact that the thing that I mentioned before, that there's a huge intergenerational impact not only are the lives of those who had preschool better, but the lives of their children are better. This is what I was talking about, this sort of ripple effect that goes through it. The preschool is very carefully designed, very excellently done. And we believe this, Zev, that the first year of college begins at two years of age. 
<laughs> the preparation for higher education needs to start there. Three things happen in preschool. Knowledge acquisition. That goes without saying. Secondly, executive function in terms of all of the things students need in order to function properly in a society and a school. And thirdly, social emotional skills, learning how to work with others. Those three components, those three things are emphasized in our preschools beginning at two years of age, emphasized at three years of age. And then when our students go on to VPK, voluntary preschool in the public schools, they have those three things that they have developed. And those are critical for preschool. All three of those are very necessary. That study you mentioned, you did send it to me. The ripple effects are astounding. I mean, in terms of mm -hmm. what having this uh, preschool education does for an individual and for a population of individuals who go through it versus if you don't. Yeah, could you name some of those factors, those ripple effects? Well, the ripple effects are basically readiness for school. I mean, those three kinds of things. If you think about what happens to a kindergarten, when a kindergarten, when they comes in, if they had none of the things that we give them, one is they must learn how to behave. Two, <laughs> they must be able to interact with their peers in an acceptable kind of way. And three, they must begin their learning experience. So many of our students are already reading when they come to kindergarten, which oftentimes is the object of going to kindergarten. So our students are that far ahead. And it is cumulative. You know, it is a very cumulative kind of effect. You know, the further are you are ahead, you get interest on that all the way through school. The further are you behind, you begin to pay that debt all the way through school. And that's the kinds of things that result in dropouts. And then when you give a student a scholarship who's graduated from high school, who doesn't have the requisite skills, the scholarship is really not that helpful because they don't have the requisite skills. That's really well said. I, By the way, I just love that statement you made that the first year of college begins at two years of age. And I know that's evidence-based and scientifically based. That's brilliant though. You know, as you're saying, it has effects that go beyond education. We know it's changed the neighborhood. It's changed the crime. I wonder if you, if you've thought about that or how you think about that, the fact that this was sort of a keystone intervention. Going back to the kinds of things Harris thought, you know, what, what Nita said about Harris is kiss. It was really very simple. Preschool, support all the way through school, ancillary kinds of things, parent leadership training, you know, so they could be advocates for their children, be able to deal, you know, and, and, and in a sense, deal with the public school system. The support that Juanita has given these students all the way through high school, that is preparing them for what they're going to encounter in college, those kinds of things. It was a very simple-minded program. You know, this is Harris Rosen. If you work with Harris, you'll understand that he likes to keep things simple. I'm a college professor. And euphemistically, Harris will say to me, this is a very understandable paragraph. We'll give it to Chuck and he'll turn it into a 50-page incomprehensible report. <laughs> we, we work very simply. This was a simple program, but the ripple effect you described, the crime, the pride of the parents, the community taking pride in itself, cleaning it up, working, working with the law enforcement agencies, getting involved in civic education, the pride in their children, the fact that we have graduates coming back and working into the community. We have an alumni association that sometimes sputters on and sputters off, but we're working on that. We're having everybody giving back. It's this sense of pride that ripples out through the community in this one little touch point. This one little community of a thousand homes has rippled out all over Florida and heavens knows where. We have graduates all over the country. It is the kind of things Ev, that if you have one Tangelo, now we have Paramore. If we had a hundred Tangelos, the impact would be complex. It would be so much more than the sum of these individual kinds of things that I can't even begin to wrap my head around it. 
I want to move to the paramour because I think the issue of being able to replicate this is really important. You mentioned the parent leadership training. Can you say some more about that? Well, the parent leadership uh, council that we established, it was established so that we could help the parents uh, advocate for their kids. So many times you never see a parent does not show up to school unless there's a problem. And then when they would show up, they become the problem as well. <laughs> Therefore, the parent leadership program was put in place and it started with uh, Dr. Shalia Smalley, who handled it with a group of parents to actually work with them so they could understand the needs of their students, how to address the needs and how to meet and greet and advocate for their students to come up with solutions once they had the parents teacher conferences. The program, Chuck is more familiar than I am with it because he's more connected with the participants that was in the program, but it was such a success that it was replicated in the Paramore area. We had leaders from our parent leadership group to go into Paramore and train parents in that community as well. So, so let me pick up on that. So you mentioned Paramore a few times here. What is Paramore? And what did you do in Paramore? Paramore is much larger than Tangela Park, uh, probably four or five times the size. It is in downtown Orlando. Once again, an underserved community, predominantly African-American, very similar to Tangela Park in terms of crime and educational challenges. And so what we did quite simply is we just tried our best to replicate a very successful program at Tangela Park in the Paramore community. And early on, we met with all of the neighbors and we shared with them what it was that we wanted to do. We spoke to them about the successes at Tangela Park. And of course, it didn't take very long for them to be incredibly enthusiastic and excited about what was in store for them. Once again, with Juanita's help, we worked with the schools, worked with the high school, uh, made sure that we were working closely with the parents and the students to encourage them not to give up, that they certainly had the ability to graduate from high school, to go on to trade school, or college if they desired. And the successes in Paramore will soon replicate the successes in Tangela Park. Once again, it is not complicated. It is very simple. Free preschool, work with the children and the parents right through high school. And if the children want to go on to college, it is absolutely easily accessible. Uh, and so it is something that we believe can be replicated all over America so simply. And that's our goal. Uh, before we leave Earth, Chuck and I are hoping and praying that we will see more Tangelo parks, more paramours here in America. How much money does this take in the Tangelo Park? Now you've it's been since 1994. So how much money has been invested in the preschool and the college scholarships to make this amazing change that has happened? I think th thus far, we've probably spent a little over um, 20, 23, $24 million. What has become so curious and initially somewhat unnerving to me was that the requirement for more investment on my part, particularly for college, seemed to be diminishing rather dramatically. I was very concerned about it until I discovered that our youngsters were able to garner scholarships from so many other sources. And I became uh, a safety net. And the safety net um, uh, hasn't been used 
nearly as, as often as I was when we started the program because our youngsters are qualifying for so many other uh, scholarship opportunities. It seems like your program has become uh, sort of an anchor or catalyst to, to move a larger uh, momentum. They're going out and becoming, the students and their parents are becoming much more proactive in the school system is in getting their kids the scholarships to get to school and not depending on just yours alone. Is that right? Yes, I mean, that, that's absolutely correct. I don't think they're doing it because they want me to do less. I think they're doing it because they're so intelligent and they're doing so well in school. And the multitude of other opportunities they have access to are providing them with so many different opportunities. And Juanita could certainly speak to that because she speaks to the students, advises them, helps them, and um, points them in a direction that she believes is, is appropriate for them. The Tangela Park uh, investment that Harris has made is sort of activating the education system, is activating the parents and the students. Is that right, or is there something else going on? No, it is right. And the thing is, one major component of our program is that well, I am now retired, but I'm still attached to the scholarship part of the program. I am the counselor for all of the Tangelo Park students. When I meet the students in eighth grade, that's when we start, and I'm connected with them throughout high school and until they graduate college. I challenge them. I push them. A lot, a lot of times it's a constant fight because a lot of them do not want to step out and take the more challenging classes but I know what they are capable of or what they should be capable of. I'm a strong believer that students do better with scholarships they have earned rather than just because they, where they live. They need the foundation. They need to be able to succeed. They need the resources that are needed to push them to the next level. Therefore, when I am advising them from freshman year all the way to senior year, that's what we are preparing for. We set goals. I have them to identify schools that they're interested in. And I have them to list them, look at the requirements for admissions at the time they enter high school and to elevate it because it's going to, it's going to be higher by the time they graduate. When the students challenge themselves and they apply for, I push scholarships very, very hard. When they apply for other scholarships, they are excited to know that I earned this scholarship because I had the proper foundation in the preschool, through middle school, through high school. And now I am earning scholarship dollars because I'm in the top of my class. I'm scoring higher on my test. I'm qualifying for more. That means that there's less coming from the Tangelo Park Scholarship Program because they have earned additional scholarship dollars based on their academic performance or their community service. The thing that is so important to understand about the Tangelo and Paramore models is they're emergent. Emergence is, is a function of a complex system. Emergent systems are always more than the sum of the parts. You can name all of the components of Tangelo Park but it simply does not capture the totality of what has happened in this community and has radiated out. That's very important for your listeners to understand. It is so much more than ticking off what we have done. It's critical. And the other thing is, I hope you'll circle back to the return on investment questions sooner or later. Harris has said, you know, you, you shared that there's something like 20 million or so dollars that you spent, which to me actually doesn't seem like a lot of money. I mean, it's been a lot of years. This is over 26 years. And given the results, it's pretty astounding. But Chuck, you're talking about a return on investment. Can you say more about that? The reality of it, Harris at the beginning was really not interested in collecting data. He was convinced that this was the right thing to do and he was going ahead and do it. But as we 
began to become more and more successful, people began questioning. They wanted data, they wanted information, of course, and they have a right. They wanted outcome kinds of information and we gave it to them. But the second question is, you spent $14 million in Tangelo, is there a return on investment? So there we looked for an economist who could do a return on investment study for us. And it was not an easy task. Finally, we found Lance Lochner, who at the time was at the University of Rochester, a University of Chicago economist, now at the University of Western Ontario. And Lance is a student and a colleague of Heckman, a Nobel laureate. And he did a return on investment study for us a few years ago. And his conclusion was conservatively that for every $1 invested in Tangelo Park, $7 returns to society from reduced crime rates, the preschool impact, and the educational impact, seven to one. So of the $14 million, multiply by seven. Now, if you multiplied by a thousand tangelos, you'd understand the economic impact that's involved in this. Now, this is sort of critical because Harris was convinced once we did an return on investment study, we would be able to convince other entities, especially from the private sector, that this was a good investment. And Harris will be one to tell you that he's talked to his colleagues, not only are you doing the right thing, you're building an excellent customer base because people are becoming educated, they're paying more taxes, and they're using more of your products. Right, Harris? That's correct, Chuck. Not only a, a customer base, but if you're looking for qualified associates to join your company, you're essentially producing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of youngsters who would probably not have graduated from high school and certainly not from college, who now are graduating from both. And if you're looking for individuals who are qualified to fill various positions in your company, you've created them. Isn't that wonderful? So let me ask you a question in terms of the, and this goes back to Chuck, what you were saying about, you know, changing the country, transforming the country one community at a time. What would this look like? And, and maybe Harris, you could, if you're recommending that to others to do this, are you, is your audience multimillionaires? Is your audience employers? I mean, who's going to do what you did and are, are still doing in these communities that surround your organization? That, that's a great question. And I, I wish I had in my mind a profile of that individual. I don't. We have been disappointed so many times. I don't really know who the perfect individual would be. Certainly they need to be uh, wealthy and certainly they need to have a heart. Now you would think that in America, finding wealthy individuals with a heart would not be terribly difficult. For some reason, in the nearly 30 years we've been doing this, it has become exceedingly difficult. Now, we haven't given up hope. And we believe that there are prospects that may indeed do exactly what we're hoping and dreaming they will do, adopt an underserved community. But if every underserved community in America had a tangible part program, we would absolutely unequivocally not recognize this great nation. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. And that's what's so frustrating for us. Why would wealthy individuals who have a good heart, why would they not hop on board? We don't have an answer. We don't know. But in all of the years we've been doing this, perhaps, perhaps, and we hope we will have some really good news in a while, a few more will join this enterprise. It is so incredibly frustrating. We have demonstrated unequivocally how successful this program is. Not, not only in, in terms of changing a community, not only in terms of providing opportunities for young people who didn't have these opportunities, but also look at Lance's mathematics, seven to one. Dear God, 
He said when he came to Orlando to make the announcement of the completion of his study on return on investment, he said he'd never seen numbers like this before, especially uh, in initiatives that are public sector oriented. And here we are doing this. And it's not complicated, but it's driving us crazy. I read an article, Chuck, that you co-authored, and it was titled Educational Equity, A New Kind of Philanthropy. And you really reframed this notion of philanthropy. I mean, again, in my previous thinking about philanthropy, I would be thinking healthcare centers. I would be thinking art centers. I would be thinking community centers. You've made me think there is nothing, nothing that could be more important than education uh, in terms of transforming communities and transforming our future. And again, I also think given where we are right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, which has emerged in, in 2020, if I was going to speak to leaders of that movement uh, or leaders in general, it would be, look at this. This is a keystone effort. This is what we should be doing across the country. So I'm, I'm just kind of wondering how you think, Chuck, you were the author of that article about reframing this, this notion of philanthropy as really focusing on educational equity to, to change people's lives and particularly Black lives and Latinx lives and minority lives. What do you think about that, Chuck? Well, I thought a lot about that. I, my daughter, who is, works in the equity area for Universal Studios, we talk continually about that. And I've told you about my intention to do an intergenerational impact study. You have to understand, Zeb, that I'm a college professor. And I have always acted like a college professor. So as I began conceptualizing this kind of study, I said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to conceptualize this. I put together a wonderful National Advisory Committee, a wonderful working committee on which Juanita is a member. And I've started to go with our foundation and say, hey, oh, I'm going to get a grant. I'm going to get a grant to do a planning study of my intergenerational study. I'm going to get the money. And then I'm going to go to Tangelo and say, hey, guys, I've got this money. Let's do a study. Wrong. Wrong, Zev. If we're going to do a study, Tangelo Park, the citizens and the graduates should be actively involved in the planning of that study from day one. I have to learn how to stop acting like a college professor because I work with my foundation at my university who works with foundations who fund. They have a board. They have an agenda. They have their agenda. We structure our foundation so we can get money from them. We don't involve the community. We only involve them. This is Black Lives Matter. If we're going to pay attention to this, if we're going to do a documentary of Tangelo, the citizens should do the documentary, not a filmmaker. If we're going to do a study of what happened in Tangelo, the community should do the study. And I should help. You know, I should be a willing partner, not necessarily a leader. If I'm going to do a study of the impact on the graduates and their families, they should do it. That's what Black Lives Matters is about. Foundations, I'm going to say this, and you can cut it if you want. Foundations will give you money. They will not give you power. They will not abdicate their agenda, you know. So I'm going to have a challenge getting this funded. Juanita, one of the questions around interventions like this and initiatives like this is, is, you know, where is the community and the community voice in this? And, you know, pretty much to what Chuck was saying, how have you handled that in the evolution of this emergent Tangela Park initiative and, and in the Paramore initiative? Is the community, do the parents have a voice? Are they part of the governance structure? How does that work? Well, the parents and the students, uh, the parents are involved from the very beginning when the students enter school. A lot of them are involved when they enter the preschool. Okay. And then they go and we have a feeder, a feeder program in our community. All of our two, three, four-year-olds receive the free daycare at the Tangelo Park preschool. We have some in-home daycares and we have a regular two, three-year-old preschool that's housed on the Tangelo Park Elementary School campus. The students feed into the elementary school. A lot of parent involvement. Then all of our students uh, go into Southwest Middle School. We have a strong support system at the middle school. We have a very good principal there who is putting one counselor in place to work with the students there. 
Then when they get to the high school, again, they have one counselor. And since it's a feeder program, the parents are fully aware of how the students are doing, where they're going. They communicate with me constantly. Now, I'm not going to say 100% of the parents are on board, but I would say 50% of them are on board. While I was at um, Dr. Phillips High School, I would meet with parents from the time their students entered the high school, and they would check in each year to make sure the kids were doing what they needed to do. When we have new parents and new families to move in, then it's a situation wherein I have to meet them and try to gain their trust. But for the most part, moving forward, the parents are involved. Uh, we are still working on the Paramore community because the communities are totally different. In Pangelo Park, there are two ways in and two ways out, unless you cut through the woods. They're all single family homes. In Paramore, it's different because it's in the city. It's, an, it's a section of uh, Paramore. You said about the structure, and, and I really have to speak to that. There is no structure. <laughs> we have a once-a-month community action board meeting where the community gets together, and we discuss our issues, and we resolve our issues, and we do our initiatives. We get together. We have for going on 30 years. We get together, we break bread, we have coffee, we discuss. There is no bureaucracy associated with this program. You know, this is this is what is so difficult for organizations to comprehend. We do it so informally that this happens in a conversational kind of way. And we have been doing it. And since COVID has come on board, we have been doing it in Zoom and it's killing us because we can't get together, right, Juanita? We can't get together and interact and talk and, and discuss and hear Harris Rosen give the treasurer's report to say, don't worry, I'm paying the bills. These are the kinds of things that empower us. And we have people who have been coming to this meeting for 30 years. Have we not, Juanita? People have 30 years. And this is such an integral part of this. And it is so contrary the way universities are run, the way organizations are run, and I think the way healthcare is run. Harris, I want to I want to give you the final word here. Any other thoughts? You know, my my hope is that trying to in whatever small way I can get this message out to others. And so, with that in mind, what final thoughts do you have about this? Well, Chuck and Juanita are just so wonderful, and their contribution has been. Uh, quite extraordinary. Once again, what, what leads our effort philosophically is to keep it simple. We've succeeded in doing that. And I think we've been successful partially because of the simplicity of the concept. What drives me absolutely insane is that we know, those of us who have been involved, we know what this program has succeeded in doing. We know that it can be replicated quite easily. Why, in God's name, don't we have hundreds of tangible park programs instead of two? Why? Something that I don't understand and will never understand. We don't know why. Oh, we've thought of various reasons, but nothing that is terribly complex. And so we will continue to work hard to attempt to encourage others to do what we've done. I do believe that we will have some extraordinary success in the near future, but it has taken so long, so long, Zeb. And it is something that Chuck and I and Juanita and everyone associated with the program don't really quite understand at all. It is a simple program that can change America. You know, we hear quite appropriately 
people suggesting that Black Lives Matter. We see demonstrations, sometimes a bit violent. But what I would like to see and hear more of are people who not only say Black Lives Matter, but people who are inclined to do something about it. Here's a program with 30 years of experience with extraordinary success. Simple, not complicated. All somebody has to do who cares about black lives, Hispanic lives, is ask us some questions. Come and visit with us. Talk to the students, talk to the parents. And they will realize unequivocally that this is a program that is worth replicating. So that's the great frustration that we all feel. Why? 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 Well, Harris, you know, you've inspired me. And here's a promise I'm going to make to myself. I'm going to take this podcast episode, our recorded dialogue, and I'm going to make sure it gets in the hands of at least three people who can do something with it who have the means or are engaged in something that can actually lead to some action. And uh, I've already got a couple of people in mind. And I'd like to turn to the folks who are listening to this podcast episode, who many, if not most are in healthcare and focused on that. But I would ask you to do the same. It's always one or two or three degrees of separation. I really think this is something that should get to be heard by and get to folks who can actually do something, who can start these programs. There is enough wealth in this country to make this happen. This podcast is about action and about taking action and about catalyzing transformational change. So I just wanted to share that with you, Harris. And, and Zev, let me, let me extend an invitation to you and those three individuals to come to Orlando. We have fine accommodations for you to stay at. But we'd love you to take a look at Tangelo and Paramore. We'd love you to talk to the teachers. We'd love you to speak with the students themselves. We'd love you to see what we've done. And I, I think that you'll be quite surprised how simple it is and how potentially easy it will be to replicate. Zeb, you know, we have some amazing scholarship programs and opportunities that are available for students. Nothing like this one. However, it comes with a name on a check. The students know they're getting a scholarship from John Doe Foundation or this, that, and the other, but they don't have a clue as to who that person is. The students who benefit from the Tangelo Park and the Rosen Paramore Scholarship, they know Mr. Rosen. He is hands-on. They know him. His face is a part of it. So he's not a stranger. He's visible. He's touchable. And he's always available. Every year we have graduation from preschool at both Tangelo and Paramore. I must confess, and I have many wonderful events occurring during the year, to celebrate, but those two graduations are for me the highlight of my year. I give out the diploma, I turn the tassel, at the end I say a few words. Moms and dads, grandma, grandpa, get used to this. This is graduation number one. You have kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, graduate school. This is just the beginning. A lot of tears I can hear, but it is so wonderful, so amazing. And it breaks my heart that in New York, my old town, in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Pittsburgh, 
all over the United States of America. There are neighborhoods that need help. And we have the template that will provide that help. Well, you know, I just want to really thank you all for what you've done. Uh, again, it was just so inspiring to read all the studies and articles and now to hear firsthand from you all. You know, Harris, as you said earlier, there's just, you know, we're, we're put on this earth and we each have a mission to really help others. And uh, I think, you know, what you've done here is is just a brilliant example of that. Well, listen, Zev, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We're, we're so appreciative. And I think we would also like to say thank you and God bless. Harris Rosen, Professor Chuck Juban, Juanita Reed, thank you so, so much. Folks, so that was the interview we recorded a few days ago. I recently heard a quote which really struck me. And here's the quote. It was, kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. Kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. It's a great quote. From my perspective, it's the language. Kindness is the language that we all want to hear and that I believe we all need to become more fluent in. I think that Harris Rosen and his colleagues are masters in the language of kindness. And I believe that other senior leadership teams, other CEOs can learn something from Harris and his colleagues about kindness. And this is no criticism. This is no critique of others. It's just, I think this is just a wonderful example, uh, so inspiring, so motivating. And my hope is, as you heard in the interview, my hope is that that this might help actually spread the word about the Tangelo uh, Youth Program. I want to thank our guests, Harris Rosen, the CEO of Rosen Hotels and Resorts, Chuck Zubin, and Juanita Reed. And as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and we recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. This is Zev Newworth. I'm creating a new healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.